Should we pray as we look at God's word together? Father God, I just really want to thank you that we can worship you this morning. Lord, I thank you for things that were shared at the beginning of our service, Lord, and for all those things that weren't shared. But Lord, I'm also thankful that there are probably some here this morning, undoubtedly so, who feel they've got nothing that they can be thankful for, that maybe life is particularly feeling rough for them. But Lord, I thank you that there will come a day of joy for those people. There will come a day of thankfulness because we know, Lord, that you are the God who gets us through the storm. And Lord, if we remain faithful to you, you remain faithful to us. So that we can give thanks to you even in the darkest depths, even in the deepest trouble, your deepest pit, because we know you are the great releaser of the captives. And I pray for those this morning of whom, Lord, they may well have felt there's nothing that I feel good about. Father God, I pray you bless them. I pray you show them your presence again and comfort them. And Lord, now as we look at Daniel chapter 9, Father, we finish this amazing book. Lord, having really got nowhere near the beginning of starting yet, there's so much more to say. We pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, if we've got Daniel chapter 9 opening, that'd be brilliant. Um, bits of it will, will pop up um, behind me. Um, but we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9 in a moment. But I want to ask you a question, first of all, uh, a rhetorical question. I think I probably told you in my home church in Chadwell Heath, the minister asked a rhetorical question, and, uh, and I put my hand up and answered it, <laughs> and then felt immediately quite silly. So um, you can if you want, but that's the, that's the cost. Anyway, so uh, how do you deal with uh, significant news, bad news or just life-changing news, or news that you weren't expecting? I wonder how you deal with it. Um, maybe something happens that you weren't expecting to happen, you're told, this is now happening. I wonder how do you deal with that? Um, are you the sort of person that bursts into an angry fit of rage, shouting at everybody? Uh, are you the sort of person that goes quiet and just sort of processes it? Are you the sort of person that gets a bit short with everybody? Do you swear? Uh, do you go and have a drink? Um, do you go quiet? Do you pray? Um, do you sort of pragmatically try and work your way through? When I was a certain age, I can't remember, a um, long time ago now, um, Andrea decided to throw me a surprise birthday party, which was wonderful of her. And uh, I wasn't expecting it, that's why it's a surprise party and not a regular party, but I'm sure you're with me so far. Anyway, um, we were getting ready to go out for my birthday, I think it was a Friday evening, and uh, we're going to a place in Romford, or up Romford, as I used to say, um, called McCluskey's, and I could not wait to go to McCluskey's. I was thinking, it's gonna be, I had my checkered shirt on, because it was the 90s, and that's how everyone dressed, jeans and a checkered shirt, and trainers, and I, I, if I don't mind blowing my own trumpet, I thought I looked pretty, pretty tasty. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to ask the question. <laughs> anyway, we got ready, and I was thinking, here we go, ready to go out to McCluskey's with my friends, brilliant times, and then Andrew said, oh, we've got to drive to um, Harold Wood and pick up my sister and her husband Mick and I thought well why can't they drive and meet us there in fact I thought they should be picking us up because it's my birthday I got a bit spoiled about the whole thing anyway we got there and, uh, and suddenly we got to the front door which opened magically and, uh, and it was very dark inside the house and Andrew said you going first and I thought it's maybe ladies first and, anyway, and uh, I saw a flash of light and I thought what's that anyway, and then suddenly there was a big surprise lots of people in the room lots of photos it was the closest I've ever got to being a celebrity and, uh, but it took me about 45 minutes to process the fact that I was no longer going to McCluskey's <laughs> in Romford I was now staying here uh, which I had an amazing time it was a brilliant time together but it's funny isn't it when, when something happens we sometimes react in a way that we're not particularly expecting and actually a lot can be said about a person their priorities their values their temperament their character even their faith 
by their initial response to difficult or important news. Today we're finishing our series on the book of Daniel um, and we see one final important lesson from the life of Daniel and it comes as we watch his response to news from home unfold in chapter 9. If you've got chapter 9 open in front of you, that would be brilliant uh, just to have you. If you've not got a Bible, there's some at the back. There's always some that you can take as you come in. And, and we're going to see um, something about Daniel that we've known about, but we're going to see again. And the reason this is a really important part, in fact, I think what happens in chapter 9, what we see about Daniel in chapter 9, I think is probably the most important part of the entire book, which is quite a big thing to say considering what we talked about last week. I think it's probably one of the most important lessons in the whole of Daniel. Why? Because what we see in chapter 9 is what we've always known from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12, is that Daniel was a man of prayer. And what we see in chapter 9 is that what sustained him, what enabled him to be a godly, brave, spiritually dynamic man throughout all of his time in captivity in the Babylonian Empire, which became the Persian Mede Empire, was that he never stopped praying. He never stopped seeking God, even with the threat of being thrown into the lion's den, if you remember, a few chapters ago. And it was William Wilberforce that said, above all things, do not neglect God in the secret place of prayer. Above everything, William Wilberforce said, above everything. Think about that. Think of what he was involved with. Above everything, do not neglect God in the secret place of prayer. And it is so important, actually, to be in the presence of the king as regularly as you can, because that's what prayer is. Prayer is not some vague religious duty we get done so we can have a coffee and go to work or go and do the shopping or something. It is entering the presence of the king. Above everything, don't neglect entering the presence of the king. That's what we're told. Psalm um, 73, one of my favorite lines, um, uh, the psalmist there, Psalm of Asaph, writes about all of his struggles with the ungodly. He's saying, well, I don't get it, the arrogant get this, and this person, the evildoer gets this, I don't understand. Why do they prosper? Why am I struggling so much? And then in verse 17 of Psalm 73, he says this. So he says from verse 16, when I try to understand all this, as in how the wicked seem to do so well, It troubled me deeply, in verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The man that wrote this psalm struggled with why the ungodly seem to prosper so often and the godly seem to struggle so often. Why is it their destiny seems all right and mine seems to be so tough I'm meant to be part of God's people? Then he says, I went into the temple, I went into the presence of God and everything made sense. The secret place of prayer. So today we're going to see again that Daniel was used by God because Daniel sought out God over and over again. The lesson is clear. Um, we're gonna, we haven't had a chance to read Daniel chapter 9, mainly because I couldn't quite work out how to divide it up. Uh, for a shorter reading. But let's remind ourselves of what happens in Daniel chapter 9, if you're not familiar with it. Daniel chapter 9 takes place during the reign of the third king. You remember there are three kings uh, so far. We've had the two Babylonian kings. They're now gone. They've been taken, replaced by the Persian king, a guy called Darius. So he's now on the throne of this big empire, and Daniel is now his captive. 
And this third king is there, and, and as he's praying, he's in one of his regular, three times a day he prayed, remember, three times a day, he's praying, he's reading the scriptures, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, specifically. Uh, there are four major prophets in the Old Testament, 12 minor prophets, they don't wear little hats and dig tunnels, but they're smaller books, and you've got four big books, four major prophets. Jeremiah is one of them, Daniel is another. And so Jeremiah was a prophet before Daniel, who was in Jerusalem, uh, with God's people before they went off to exile. Daniel was in exile. He was a prophet before they went off to exile. And he spent years, Jeremiah, pleading with God's people, stop rebelling against God, turn from your sin, over and over and over. Because if you don't, God is going to punish you. God is going to take you off into exile and he's going to let them destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. That was his message over and over again, repent. And so Daniel is reading the words of the prophet, Jeremiah, Specifically, his prophecy about how this captivity is only going to last, I say only, uh, only going to last 70 years. That's quite a long time, really. But they're going to be away in this, uh, this other kingdom for 70 years, and then God is going to bring them home and allow them to rebuild Jerusalem and specifically the temple. And what's really amazing that Daniel may, may well have read the words of Jeremiah 25, 11 to 13. When Jeremiah writes this, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book, and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. Daniel may well have read those verses, that this exile was going to last 70 years, and then God was going to bring his people home. He may well have read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, when it says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you, and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. There Daniel is in the midst of that 70-year exile. Jeremiah's um, probably gone at this point, and he reads his prophetic words. And he realizes that these 70 years are nearly up. He realizes that the 70-year period is nearly finished. In verse 3 of Daniel, his response to that life-changing news, we talked about news a minute ago, is that he falls to his knees in prayer. He pleads with God, remain faithful to your covenant. He pleads for God's goodness. He pleads that God will send them home. And this really is one of the most amazing prayers in all of the Bible. He, let me read verse 3 to you. Um, in fact, I'll read from verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descendant, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord had given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. He prays for the guilt of his own people, even though he himself actually is quite godly. Four times he says, we, we as a nation have sinned, and it's right actually as Christians to pray we as a nation have sinned. Forgive us as a church. Forgive us as a nation. Forgive us as a world. We stand with those that have turned from God, even if we may not have done. 
and plead for God's forgiveness. He appeals to the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of God's people. He affirms God's compassion, God's graciousness, his love and his faithfulness. He pleads that God will do what he promised through Jeremiah, even though God's people still don't deserve it. And I'll read to you a little chunk of this prayer. So verses 7 to 12 and then 17 to 19. This is some of what Daniel prays. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept his laws. He gave us through his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and the sworn judgments written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against Uh, against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a great disaster under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to jerusalem and then down to verse 17 he says now our god hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake lord look with favor on your desolate sanctuary give ear our lord and hear open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name we do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. I think it's an amazing prayer, it really is. He doesn't say, you notice in this prayer, you know, Lord, it's been 70 years, enough's enough. It's like been nearly 70. Can you take this home, please? Don't you think we've had a rough enough time? Some of us weren't even alive when they did it, and you've sent them off to exile. You know, she doesn't say, you know, we're really, really sorry, can we go back now? He doesn't appeal to any of their righteousness that they may perceive they have, or any of their entitlement that they might think they have in the face of an almighty God. In fact, he recognizes their sin completely. He recognizes their total reliance on God's goodness. In fact, what he recognizes is their complete unworthiness to have anything good from God at all. You think of the prodigal son when he returns home after feeding the pigs and losing all of his dad's money. What does he say? He doesn't say, well, I'm really sorry, can you like, give me the robe and the ring and I'll go back to being your son. No, he says, I'm unworthy to have anything. In fact, make me a servant. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be a servant, but what I am is just sorry. And then he's given absolutely everything. We don't tend... This is a generalization, so forgive me. We don't tend, it seems, to feel unworthy before our God as much as we might have done in previous years. Often Christians can have a sense of entitlement, can't they? Well, God owes me. It's been quite tough, actually. And it's about time God sorted it out. He owes me. I've been really good. I'm on the coffee rotor at church twice last month. I mean, you know, if that doesn't rain down the blessings from heaven, nothing will, Lord. We can often feel that we actually are owed a debt by God. You know, it should get sorted because, you know, I'm me and you're you and that's how it's supposed to work. 
But actually, that's judging God, isn't it? That's setting you above him. You don't want to be up there, trust me, because that's not right. In fact, actually, that's arrogance. Because when we start telling God what a perfect, holy, good God should do, then actually what we say is, I know better. And I can never know better than a perfect, holy God. And if I think I know better, then I think far too much of myself. Daniel doesn't even hint that he might think God has made a mistake. And I know that's hard to hear because sometimes things happen that are terrible and we don't know why. But we can trust the goodness of God in every single situation. We should pray with the same humility that Daniel prayed. We should pray with the same confession of our sin regularly. I wonder, do we begin our prayer times with, sorry, Lord? Do we ask God forgiveness, not just for the intentional sins, but maybe even the unintentional sins? We're very good at excusing the things we do. I couldn't help it. It hurt. They upset me, so it just came out. That's still a sin. You still have to say sorry for that. Do we ask God forgiveness for those things that we did on purpose? But do we also ask God forgiveness for those things we should have done on purpose? Like love our neighbor, forgive those who ask. And then we don't do it. That's a sin of omission, if you want a, a, a phrase to hang it on. Daniel's strength in exile in Babylon and Persia wasn't his character, wasn't the position he'd carved out in that empire. It was his humble, deep, intimate closeness with Almighty God. Actually, it's worth noting that despite the amazing visions in the book of Daniel, he was a man of the word of God. When those exiles would have been taken off to Babylon first, they would have taken as many scrolls of Old Testament writings as they could have done. And we know that what they did when they got there was copy them out and copy them out and copy them out, like they do in China and places like North Korea. When they get a Bible, they copy it out. And they say, you take that, I'll copy it, and you have that, because they wanted the word of God. Daniel didn't just pray He meditated on the scripture, on the words of God. And because of that commitment to prayer and the word of God, God spoke to him and God used him mightily. How many Christians do none of those two things and still wonder why God doesn't use them to change the world? He ain't going to. He ain't going to. That is the requirement. The fuel tank for the Christian life is the quiet time of the Christian And when we fill our day up with prayer and study and meditation on the word of God, we become ready to be used by God. And that's why it's so hard to do, by the way, because the devil knows when you pray seriously, dynamically, intimately, when you meditate on the word of God, even one verse, the devil knows he's in trouble. That's why he makes it so difficult to do. You should see it as a fight worth fighting your quiet time, not something that's awkward to get in. So that's what Daniel did. He put God first. Martin Luther, um, not Martin Luther King, the other Martin Luther of the Reformation, said, if I should neglect prayer but a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of faith. If I should neglect prayer but a single day, I should lose a great deal of fire for the faith. So Daniel prays, contrite, humble, heart-wrenching cries to God, for God to move, he does. And then something amazing happens in verse 20 to 23. The archangel Gabriel from the Christmas story arrives and speaks to him. So let me read that to you. It says, while I was speaking, verse 20, and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Daniel gets a message that is out of this world. Notice that that comes after he confesses his sin, not before. Daniel, remember, wants to know really when this 70 years is going to be up, when they're going to get to go home. That's really what he's praying about. When are we going to go home? Make sure that you send us home, Lord, please, even though we sin. And actually, that's what he seems to be praying about. But he gets a really unusual message. In verse 24, Gabriel says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to fill up, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. It's a really unusual uh, message. Many people agree that these 77s are referring to years that he's being told of a period of 490 years. And from verse 25 onwards, um, this period of time, whenever it starts, is broken down into things that will happen in the future. Again, last week, uh, remember these books, um, lots of uh, books have been written about chapter 9 and when these uh, 70 weeks are, when they refer to, are they actual years or is it an analogy of something else? And I'm not going to worry too much about when they start. But what Daniel is told in the second bit of chapter 9 are things referring to the future. He's told some amazing things. He's told, actually, that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and that a man is going to come and issue a decree for them to return and they will rebuild their broken capital city. And the next king in the Persian Empire, a man named Cyrus, would give that decree just a few years later. And surely Daniel would have had absolutely no idea what was coming next. At the end of 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22 to 23, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, He has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem in Judah. And any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. Remember last week that we noted that Daniel often had visions uh, that were seen in the near future but also the distant future. And uh, most people agree that as it goes on to say that um, it talks about in verse 25, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of the anointed one. The ruler comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. And uh, many people understand that second aspect of this message by Gabriel to be a prophetic messianic message of the Messiah that would come, the anointed one who is going to come. And that is clearly a reference to Jesus Christ who would come hundreds of years after this message by Gabriel to Daniel. And if you were to flick over, but we won't, but Micah chapter 5 verse 2 even says, you Bethlehem, even though you're the smallest, A ruler will come from you. And so he's then told more. He's told after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And he talks about the people of the ruler destroying the city. 
Again, most believe, as I do, this is a reference to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. In fact, many people have worked to understand these sevens and these weeks to actually even pinpoint when Jesus died relating to when this prophecy was given in the first place. But he's shown even further along than that. It says, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And most people see this as a, a prophetic warning of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was a very significant moment for the Jewish nation and the church for many different reasons. Then verse 27 says this, He will confirm a covenant, talking about another person, this ruler, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at that time, at that, sorry, and at that, the temple, he will set up, sorry, let's start again. And he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him and again some people see this as being that guy I spoke about Antiochus Epiphanes but many other people say this is even further into the future talking about the just before the return of Christ when many Christians believe there will be a very tough time where someone will rise up an antichrist who will oppose God oppose God's church and persecute God's very people but the message of chapter 9 is actually more than the specifics of what might happen in the future. In fact, uh, Daniel's visions across the book, on one hand, are really detailed, but they're also quite vague as well, deliberately. And I think the message of Daniel isn't that he catches sight of the future more than he catches a sight of the majesty of the God behind the future. And in chapter 9, two things happen that are more important than what might happen on a specific date. First, in verse 23... When Gabriel first speaks to him, it says, As you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Or in other words, another translation, you are greatly loved. The second message for Daniel is that God has a bigger plan. Every vision that he has in this book is about more than the present. God is showing Daniel that despite appearances, there is more going on than he can possibly imagine or comprehend the tagline of our series has been being faithful to God in an ungodly society and maybe this morning we can widen it maybe it's being encouraged when life is hard or moving on when things go wrong and ultimately what makes this book so amazing and this man Daniel such an example is that he remained faithful to God in the face of death in the face of his own captivity setbacks and even pain and the reason he did that and was able to do that was because he was a man of the word of God and of prayer. And that in that secret prayer, he did not, secret place of prayer, he did not neglect God. In fact, he would meet with God over and over again. And there he was shown how much God loved him. And he would get a glimpse that there was a bigger story being played out across history, bigger than he could possibly imagine. And this morning... Nothing has changed. This morning, the only way to survive what you are going through is to pray. The only way to get through what is hitting you like a sledgehammer is to lift your eyes towards heaven, is to bow your heart before God in humility, 
is to bring it all before him in his presence. Only there can it ever hope to make sense. Because when we're in the presence of God, we know his love in a way we can't know when we're not in his presence. And we get just a glimpse that there is a bigger picture, bigger than we could possibly imagine. That even if we don't understand why, we can trust that God knows the answer. And that is what gave Daniel his strength over all those years in a place that wasn't his home. And so how do you finish a book like Daniel? I don't know. (laughs) But let me tell you how you should start your week from now on. In fact, every single day. You should start every day determined to get to know your God as if it was for the very first time. Every single day, like you'd never ever heard anything about the cross or the resurrection or the Bible and start as if you are that five-year-old who's told there's a God and he loves you and his son died for you and you think, wow, find out more. Start every day like that and no matter what this world throws at you, you will always know how much God loves you and you will always know there is a bigger picture and that will be what saves you. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you, Lord, that that we can just talk about your word on a Sunday morning. Lord, no doubt to many outside the church, it's such a strange thing to do, to to talk for 25 minutes, whatever, Lord, about a book in the Bible. But Lord, it's just treasure. Um, It's just wonderful, Father. And we look at people like Daniel, we we think we know him. We think because we heard about the, the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the lion's den, and all of that when we were in Sunday school, perhaps if we went there when we were young. Father, we, we assume we know, but Lord, there was so much more to this man. And these visions, Lord, are, are so specifically and vague at the same time, Father, because you're showing your people, you're showing Daniel, I am in control. And Lord, I just feel this morning that's a message for so many of us in this room. Father, we want to know what on earth's going on. We want to know what your plan is, but Lord, sometimes the message is I'm not going to tell you yet. Sometimes the message is simply, I want you to trust me. I know everything. Father, you do know everything. You're working, your purpose is out. And Lord, sometimes it goes beyond our understanding so often. But Lord, we trust in a God who is so good. And how do we know you're good, Lord? Because we know that when it came to it, you sent your only son, your beloved son. You allowed him to be beaten, spat and whipped Um, to be completely left by his friends and abandoned and betrayed. You allowed him, Lord, to be nailed to a cross naked, to be insulted. Lord, you allowed him to be rested in a, a tomb that wasn't even his own. Lord, everyone thinking he lost and that he was a criminal. Also, whenever we struggle with what's going on, we look to the cross and we know that a good God is on our side. Father, I pray for strength for all those who feel captive this morning, be it their emotions or their situations. May they not neglect you in the secret place of prayer this summer. May they make space to get to know you as if it is for the very first time. And I thank you, Lord, that we can. And I just commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.